This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Standard Issue for all women. Hello there. Welcome to episode 20 of the Standard Issue pod scene. I'm Mickey Noonan and I did not buy the letter written by Charles Manson I saw for sale at a Brooklyn flea market. I'm joined by... I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I once slept through an earthquake. And I'm Jen Offord and the stick bit in the end of a banana sort of freaks me out a bit. It's unpleasant. Do you know what I mean though? It's a bit umbilical cord. Yeah. Oh, I mean, that, oh, that's God, not helping. going to make it worse. <laughs> Chew through that. Anyway... This Saturday, November the 25th, is the International Day to End Violence Against Women and Girls. And later on, Sam 14 chats to Katrina McHugh, the artistic director and writer at Open Class Theatre Company, about Key Change, which is the company's play devised and set in a women's prison. Sounds interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really good. With St Andrew's Day coming up, our resident Scottish person in England, Dottie Winters, talks about how you could possibly celebrate it if you're not actually in Scotland. Good to know. Myself and Carrie Ad Lloyd chat to Susan Wakoma about her play, or, well, the play she's in. I guess it's not really her play as such. I'll shut up now. Uh, <laughs> Labour of Love and about diversity in the world of acting. And our Sarah's got the answer to one of your life questions in Sarah Millican's Question Time. And I do Disney's Brave, which is also a sort of topical for St Andrew's Day. We're going full Scottish. We are. I'm having a full Scottish. Nobody attempts square an... sausage and a bit of haggis. Mm. Nobody's to attempt an accent. If my mum were here, because she is half Scottish, I'd be going, go on mum, go on mum, do your Scottish accent, do your Scottish accent. And she'd go, I can't do it no more. <laughs> and then we'd all laugh at her, because we'd know that's what she was going to say. Oh, laughing at mum's one of life's real joy. One of my Scottish friends who's from Glasgow uh, taught me to say some really aggressive things in a Glaswegian accent, just in case I ever needed them. (laughs) For example, once when uh, somebody just walked out in front of me really drunk, and I peeped my horn. Not in any other way than, like, mate, I'm going to hit you. And he, like, banged his hands, like, on the bonnet of my car, and he was really drunk, and I thought this is the opportunity, so I opened down the window and I shouted, I can't tell you what I shouted now, because even the language I use is, is, it was quite extreme. And he looked terrified and walked off. And I thought, there you go, that worked. My, Results? My random aggressive Scottish expressions was enough to make, it, make this guy think, she's crazy, I'm not fucking with her. My friend Catherine had a toy that was given to her when she was at university, which was like this little pink felt kitten. And when you squeezed its belly, it went bing, 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 meow, bing, 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 meow, bing, 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 meow, bing, 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 meow. It was very, very cute. And we called it the space kitten. And we loved the noise it made to the extent that I once recorded it and made it my ringtone on my phone. And I was coming back from a football match once with my brother and my phone went off and loads of Scottish men were on the train and they laughed at me. And I went, oh, it's Space Kitten. And this man went, Space Kitten, 
what the fuck is that? <laughs> and he said, there was a bit of hullabaloo about who was going to sit down. And he goes, you can sit down because you've got a shit ring to <laughs> <laughs> More Scottishness later. But first, victim blaming, the Eurovision Song Contest and a lesson in how not to celebrate women. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we stare at the news like it's a sausage roll in a nativity scene. Mm, now I'm hungry. Mm. Finally, the moment we've all been waiting for has happened. Morrissey weighed in on the whole Weinstein slash Spacey slash Dickwad shit blizzard. Irish blood, English heart and fuck all sense or sensitivity. Moz was, predictably, a colossal sphincter. According to the former Smith's frontman, the real people at fault here are, you guessed it, the victims. Because Morrissey... Sigh. People know exactly what's going on and they play along, he claimed, presumably while tapping out November spawned a monster on his perfectly bendy banana. If it had given them a great career, they would not talk about it, continued. On some occasions, the person referred to as a victim is merely disappointed. Sure. There's no doubt that Moz has penned some truly great songs, made so by the wit and compassion that underlies them. Where those qualities have gone now is anyone's guess. These days, he's throwing his arms around Kevin and Harvey, as well as Nigel and Newkip. It's been in the post a while, but it's definitely time for Johnny Marr to ban Morrissey from being a Smiths fan. Actress and writer Lena Dunham has issued an apology. There's a sentence you end up saying a lot. (laughs) After she put out a statement questioning one woman's story of sexual assault. Dunham and Girls co-showrunner Jenny Connor posted a statement about allegations against Murray Miller, a writer and producer on Girls, by actor Aurora Perrineau, who filed a report with the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department alleging that Miller had assaulted her in 2012 when she was 17. Miller denied the allegations. The pair, that's Connor and Dunham, put out a statement that said, While our first instinct is to listen to every woman's story, our insider knowledge of Murray's situation makes us confident that, sadly, this accusation is one of the 3% of assault cases that are misreported every year. It is a true shame to add to that number, Mm. as outside of Hollywood, women still struggle to be believed. We stand by Murray, and this is all we will be saying on this issue. Fat chance. Dunham later called her statement naive, which isn't the word I was looking for, as much as a fucking disgrace. Fucking hell, yeah. that is just like... It's really bad. Oh, well, we've got insider knowledge because we, we like this man and he's important yeah. to us, so we can't have done it. Sorry, it's, sorry, lads. It's just not the way it works, is I, it? It's, I've got, I mean, it's I've got a certain empathy for the situation in that, you know, I've got men I'm close to, I've got a brother, I've got people that I would be horrified, absolutely horrified if they were accused of something and my gut would be screaming at me. They didn't do it. They're yep. not that sort yeah. of guy. I mean, for a start, I don't have the sort of power that Lena Dunham has of mm. me making a statement anyway, but there's absolutely no way that I would put a statement out. Not just saying this isn't true, mm. but pointing out that women lie all the time, which is yeah. what that statement also I mean, says. She's a woman who's always talking about how women need to be heard, women need to be believed. Like the point, the really, the really big crime, I think, in what she's done is suggesting that there is an element of doubt 
in any of these stories. It's that's to me is the real fucking kick in the junk. I just assume she's been listening to a hell of a lot of Morrissey recently. <laughs> Possibly his new album. Probably because what she's saying is eventually uh, we're going to hit a point. I think where a yeah. hundred women come out and talk about Harvey Weinstein because yeah. we are reaching that figure. What, so, so what she said is three of them are lying. It's absolutely preposterous. Can we have some good news on the sexual harassment front, please, Jen? Well, fortunately, Mickey, yes, you can. Thanks, um, mate. Last week, proving he is woke AF. That's as fuck, guys, in case you didn't uh, <laughs> Jen speaks internet. Yeah. I do. Yeah, I do. Lol. As, as the only millennial in the room, I am. I am just. Thank you. Anyway, everyone's favourite erstwhile Canadian teen star and hip-hop supremo, Drake, or as I'm now calling him, Snow Drake. Is this because my mate's got a Christmas jumper with Drake on it that I sent you a picture of? It is partly that and also partly because of the sentiment I will now express. Okay. uh, Yeah. So he made the news after squaring up to a sex pest at one of his gigs, spotting a man in the crowd putting his hands where they were not invited. Drake stopped his performance to call the shit weasel out. At a Sydney gig, he was filmed addressing the audience member thus. If you don't stop touching girls, I'm going to come out there and fuck you up. That was an excellent Drake impression. Yeah, I thought it's the... uh, It's like he was in the room. Yeah, it's the... I I don't know what he sounds like, so I didn't want to... Like a Canadian, I imagine, but who knows? It's very difficult to tell because if you listen to his songs, sometimes he sounds like a pretend Caribbean person. Sometimes he sounds. Uh, if he's if he's a Canadian, then what he would say is, "I'm going to come oot there oot and there. fuck you up." Yeah, but sometimes he also sounds like he's from the southern states of the US. You never know what you're going to get. It depends very much on the era of Drake music. But anyway, for clarity, he then added, "If you don't stop putting your hands on girls, I'm going to come out there." And fuck your ass up. Don't know about you, lads, but uh, that is making my hotline bling a little bit. I don't know what that means, Jen. It actually doesn't make sense in the context of this (laughs) at all, because it's a a booty call. Oh, right. Is that a Drake song? It is, yeah. Okay, see, I'm just looking at you wide-eyed and innocent and going... It's the one with the dance. Oh, fuck it. Yeah, enough with your new talk, millennial. Does does an ignorant stare not translate to a podcast? Because I've been staring at Jen going, what is this Drake music you speak You've never heard of Hotline Bling? Okay, I've got a question. (laughs) Have we ever been more divided as a nation? Well, I don't know. Some of us know what Hotline Bling is. (laughs) Well, there you go. Who, Who knows? I mean, maybe it was the War of the Roses. Maybe it was the Civil War. Who knows? But a YouGov survey last week revealed some very clear differences about Leave and Remain voters on a whole range of subjects. How do you like your steaks cooked, colleagues? Rare. Rare. Uh, okay, I'm a medium rare. You, you, you two are rare. That means we are Remainers. Oh, that is true. Yeah. Wow. Reckon gollywogs are offensive? Yes, I do. <laughs> pretty much. Yeah, me too. I mean, and by pretty much, I mean absolutely. <laughs> then we are Remainers. This is true again. Yeah. Think that Trump might still be a good president? No. No. If you do, it means you're a Leave voter and possibly on crack. (laughs) Remainers are also apparently more likely to believe that we should leave the Eurovision Song Contest, to which I can only say, maybe we should have had a fucking referendum on that instead. Do you think Ireland would have won? (laughs) (laughs) The winner of the referendum is Ireland. (laughs) What? Every time. With my lovely horse. To be fair, Ireland has lost this referendum like you wouldn't believe they have been shat all over oh sorry I was once I have told you this story before I think but I'm going to tell it again I was once 
on the Isle of Wight on a little holiday. And for some reason, in the Isle of Wight, they still sell like quite a lot of gollywog paraphernalia. Also in, in gift like shops. a lot of places on the coast of Yorkshire, mate. Like Whitby, really? Robin Hood's Bay, Scarborough. It's like the 50s. Yeah, there was, there's a lot of this going on. And I was in a gift shop, obviously, pointing these out to my friends from London, going, what the fuck is all this about? And a man says, there's like a sort of middle-aged couple in the gift shop, and a man says to his wife, look, it's a gollywog. And she said, you're not to call it that anymore, you're to call it a cuddly tie. <laughs> I think I've seen her on the Generation game. <laughs> Just to convey a belt of gollywog. Where do you think they stand on the spectrum of leave and remain? I bet they have their steak well crispy. Yeah. <laughs> well crispy steaks. Anyway. In news that surprised no one, or at least anyone with a rudimentary understanding of economics, which apparently excludes at least one of the last two Tory chances of the Exchequer, austerity hits poor people the hardest. Fucking hell, that's a surprise, isn't yeah. it? Anyone know? No. Really? Yeah. yeah, no, it's unbelievable, isn't it? But specifically, uh, disabled people, single parents, ethnic minority households and women, according Yay. to a report <laughs> last week by the Equalities Watchdog. In fact, the poorest... 10% of households will lose, on average, 10% of their income by 2022, which seems fair, right? Yeah? Sure. Sure. So the news came as a report by academics at University College London also suggested a link between restrictions on health and social care and a rise in deaths. Yeah, so an estimated 120,000 additional deaths between 2010 and 2017, in fact. Which is quite a lot, isn't it? And any such stats obviously need to be treated with caution because, of course, they're all estimates. But you don't have to be a genius to work out that if you deprive the most vulnerable people of essential services, nothing good is going to come from that, is it? So apart from, you know, you can potentially afford to give better tax breaks to your business pals or those dudes from Qatar buying up every empty flat in London. Indeed. Yeah. Mm. The American Music Awards, a ceremony fairly well known for reacting to the political climate, see Green Day's anti-Trump song last year, took place on November the 19th and promised to champion, in inverted commas, earth-shattering women. It then proceeded to give most of the gongs to young white men. Just one woman won an award as Lady Gaga picked up the favourite female pop-slash-rock artist prize. So yeah, a woman won the category specifically for women and the rest of the birds got diddly squat. Perhaps unsurprising, given only three of the 30-plus nominees were women. I am rolling my eyes so hard, I'm in danger of becoming that fish off of Blue Planet that can see through the top of its own head. Try harder, AMAs. Try much, much harder. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we womanfully step up and do something that's actually our job anyway. Women, eh? Just what are we good for? Well, stats consistently show that women are the major and often unpaid providers of long-term care. So that's something, isn't it? Perhaps then it's not surprising that a paediatric surgeon at Royal Preston Hospital decided that a man bringing his three-year-old daughter to an appointment was noteworthy, as in he literally wrote a letter congratulating the chap. Quote, Unfortunately, her mum could not be at the clinic visit today as she has not been well and father stepped in manfully, read the letter sent to Joe and Billy Martin. Let's quickly read between the lines because the underlying message isn't too hard to see. Well done, Billy, looking after your own kid. What a hero. I bet you babysit her and take her to the park and everything. 
The Martins were rightly irritated by the note, pointing out that the doctor should probably assume that fathers and mothers have equal responsibility for taking their children to hospital appointments because, you know, fathers and mothers have equal responsibility for taking their children to hospital appointments. We're all in universal agreement <laughs> with that one. Good good meeting, guys. Yeah. Thanks. Well I think it's interesting. I've seen dudes on Facebook, you know, like friends on Facebook, saying they get fucked off when people say... Oh, you're babysitting Baby. tonight, are you? It's like, no, I'm just being a parent tonight. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, like I usually am. Goes both ways, doesn't it? Yeah. I'm here with Carrie Ad Lloyd and Susan Wakoma, the star of a West End play. <laughs> I'm looking at you, Carrie Ad. Um, I, I can hate confirm. I can confirm that Susan is is star of a West End play. Yes. You. Yeah. We just saw it. We did just see it. It's called Labour of Love. Labour of Love. Do you know what? I nearly just said Love Love Labour's Love. You are not the first. I had oh. my mate was like, Oh, I'm not gonna come and see your play and I was like, Oh, that's rude. Yeah. And she was like, No, no, I can't deal with Shakespeare. I was like, it's not what do you think it is? Love's Labour's Lost. I was like, No, it isn't it's Labour of Love, it's brand new. She's like, I'm there. She still hasn't come. We've still got three more weeks. Just tell her you're also doing Love's Labour's Lost. At the same time in, in rep. rep in rep. <laughs> <laughs> she, Susan is the star of Labour of Love, which is a very brilliant play we just watched. We did just watch it. It's I about. It I, in fact, I'm not going to tell you what it's about. I'm going to ask you, oh, Susan. Can you tell us what it's about, please? The play <laughs> that you're in. in the, the, play West that, End, the play that I'm in in the West End, End doing my day, what my West End debut thing. Is, is it your debut? It's my debut. <gasps> That's congratulations. Thanks. <laughs> it's looking at the Labour Party over 27 years. And it's looking at a, a town in North Midlands, so we're away from London. And so it spans from the last general election this year, going back to 1990. And um, sort of looking at the history of the Labour Party and, you know, the sort of big fight between centrists and people who are on the far left, I guess. And uh, Tamsin Greg and Mark Freeman, who star in it, they play like two people who are from opposite sides so she's very much sort of staunch Labour um, on the left and he's more sort of your Blair centrist and how they work together that's all about and it's comedy yeah it's very funny <laughs> yeah, yeah. To, yeah it's really yeah, funny it's you, funny. Ha- you have to say but when you comedy. say it's about history of the Labour Party <laughs> it can sound but it's that's really really funny and it's also really about the history of this country in a way yeah, yeah. It's sort of, because it's not just Labour obviously they're talking about the Tories and Margaret yeah. Thatcher and how it has affected, like you said, a small Midlands town. Yeah. Yeah, well, I thought it was absolutely fascinating. There you go, that's my review. Brilliant, <laughs> thank you. Absolutely <laughs> fascinating. Also, absolutely, yeah. Absolutely fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Put on the poster. Yeah. It's not only your West End debut yeah. here, you've also just... Yeah. You've also just sort of won something, haven't you? Oh. Or, or you've been named as <laughs> as a breakthrough Brit by yeah. BAFTA. Yeah, it's so exciting. Yeah, it's really nice. Yeah, it's really nice. It's so it's weird because that's to do with telly and mm. stuff, and this is so it did feel very separate. Like we had um, there was a big ceremony last Wednesday, and in the run up to it, we did all this press and met all these great people, and and it's and it is actually genuinely brilliant because it's about mentorship. So for a year, for twelve months, we get to liaise with BAFTA with people that we want to speak to, mm-hmm. um, wow. who can give us advice. So I'm looking to write a lot more. So for me, it's going to be speaking to writers and creators and producers. Da, da, da. And that's all at your fingertips. You're a member for a year. You get to go to loads of talks and stuff. It's like a real... You're not just on the list saying, you're going to hopefully do well. Like, it's 
they give you loads of tools for that to happen. Mm. I read an interview that you did with The Guardian, I think, quite yeah. recently. You have started writing more partly because you felt that there were not enough roles mm. for not white people, Bang women. On. Yeah, women, yeah, it's completely, there's no men. <laughs> no men in my script. So, um, yeah, I've been commissioned to write a pilot. And uh, I think there's a man who turns up in like episode three, mm -hmm. <laughs> but I'm only writing the pilot, so it's just women. It wasn't strictly oh there isn't enough roles. There are enough roles if you're happy just having one line. If you're happy yeah. to sort of shuffling in and out of one scene, there is such a difference when you're in a series and you're you've helped create a, a role in some sense, whether it's just it's coming out of your mouth compared to those experiences that I've had which is you know a day on set and that's it I feel like it's one of the only ways that you get better and you get to know yourself as an actor is if you do it and mm -hmm. so it was there was just a point in my career where I was like I could pay rent just literally doing bit parts all the time mm -hmm. but I, I, I just feel like the idea of what a, a lead actor actress is is just I don't fit into that of a lot of things and um, that's rubbish yeah and so you just sort of go well I could moan and I'm just I, I was just at a point where I had enough of trying to convince people that I was talented enough or that I could do they just I saw punts happening to so many of my male friends out of drama school I was like oh he's just out of drama school of course he can play Hamlet mm. like just of course yeah I have to jump through hoops in order to do like one measly scene and I just I had to you know you can play that game and you can try and fight that but I just I got to a point where I was like yeah I'm not interested in, in fighting that I'll just write my own stuff and that was with the encouragement of Phoebe Wallabridge who's a good friend of mine and um, Michaela and lots of other women who were just going ah I'm just going to do it myself How um, was it being part of something like Chewing Gum which is an incredible series I'm going to talk about it before and I think like you said Phoebe's Fleabag and then yeah. Michaela doing Chewing Gum it did feel like this tide was changing Yeah and you were watching a show completely driven by a woman, not, oh, she's an amazing actor and someone else wrote this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, she wrote it, she's in it. Like, it must have been incredible. Did it feel quite exciting to be part of it at the time? It did, because these were women whose foundation was theatre. Mm. So, Chewing Gum came from a one-woman show. Fleetback came from a one-woman show. I met Phoebe doing Crashing, which was her first series that she'd written. And I, and you know, she had this very well-known theatre company. That was how I knew Phoebe. I didn't know her as a television anything. Hadn't seen it at all on television. And so what was exciting about that, what is exciting about that, is that you're having women who are skilled. You, you know that these women are in a room and someone could probably try and tell them how to do it and you know that they have the strength to go, no. Mm. Actually, no, I know what I've been doing long enough because I've been creating this and doing this before you realised that I was probably worth investing in. And that is what's really exciting. I read that article uh, that you, like, we've retweeted it. It was really good. That Sarah, can't say her Oh, Sarah Soleimani wrote. Yeah. yeah, that was really good. Yeah. She was, she, I thought she wrote that very brilliantly. That was very, very interesting about she, how in America so many more women are in writers' rooms because... Women watch TV. Yeah. Women yeah. are in control, usually, of like the household purse. And yeah, things it's, like that. It's, it's kind of incredible that it's only just happening. But yeah. definitely, also, American television works completely differently. They have writers' rooms, so they may yeah, have 20 yeah, yeah. writers. Mm -hmm. So in the past, you would have had 20 
white men might in that. Mm. And so eventually, of course, they're driven completely by advertising. So they're like, oh, we should get some women in so we can write some good female characters who will watch this so they will watch the adverts. Yeah. Like, it's all yeah, money. It's all money. And you sort of want it to be a kind of social change. Yeah, yeah. But it isn't. It's just business. It's business. But they're better at business, I think, than, yeah. we, than we are. Presumably in the States, then, also, there are more not white people in writers rooms as well yes I think so yeah I wouldn't know from hands down yeah. you would think that given you know the yeah. demographics of the US you would definitely think that would yeah. be the case if it's driven by money yeah. and you're well one of my really good friends is a writer and she was struggling here for years years and years and years and years and couldn't like some of the stories that I and she you know you know she's from like a quite well off family she went to Oxford like sort of if she was a white man like she would be <laughs> commissioning something you know but nothing happened and about two years ago she got a job um, through her own sort of efforts um, joining the writers room for how to get away with murder and so she literally over a week she had to pack her life and go and live in LA and um, and I've seen her quite a few times and obviously there's you know with any job there are some gripes or there's some things that she doesn't quite understand but she's like they just make it worth your while mm. because over here in the UK you will work the same amount and you've got nothing to show for it. So in the end, if you haven't, if you're not, you know, living off, you know, mum's dollar or dad's dollar or whatever, you have to give up. Whereas there, you do one job and you know that you can focus and give all your energy on it because you don't need to worry about your rent, you don't need to worry about this because it's it's just a bigger business and she's like it, it shouldn't matter but it does because ultimately if you can't afford to write then you stop writing it's the same across all of the arts though yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, because yeah. it's such a competitive and the same in politics as well actually yeah. because it's so competitive to get into these things you can't do it unless you can afford to work for free yeah, yeah. precisely and then that's the problem with everyone at the top is the same because mm. they're all from the same background yeah mm. I think that's really exciting, though, that I do feel like it's changing. And I do feel like I loved chewing gum. And then the other one, you, well, you oh, haven't watched Crazy Head, but you've mm. watched Crazy Head. Yeah, I, t I spoke to you about this before. Yeah, I know, Because yeah. I, I, I really loved it. I always say that as a teenager, the character that, that I identified with is uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, <laughs> uh, which is weird because I never put a stake for a vampire's heart or so anything. Weird. But <laughs> anyway, crazy head. Crazy head. I really liked So, Buffy, I was really yeah. into that when I was a kid, and uh, I think that every teenage girl should have a Buffy. You're one of the lead roles in it. It's pretty good. Yeah, it's and nice. it was really good. It was really well written. It was really funny. And I thought it was really responsibly cast yeah. as well so yeah, like yeah 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 for example do. your brother in yeah. the in the show uh, he's a very attractive uh, very attractive young man and he <laughs> plays in he plays quite dull nice guy yeah which kind of like felt almost out of place yeah it's like you're you're not playing attractive <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Awesome. No, yeah, yeah. But Hang on. That was yeah. There was some thought to that. Yeah. Like, look at him. You think, all oh, right, so he's gonna turn up and make shit like wild, and he just is really nice brother. Yeah. <laughs> a really nice brother who we have to like put aside as we go and like yeah get some demons. Yeah, and, it's, and I thought <laughs> it was like we've really... got to drug him and be like, go to sleep, literally. So it's always yeah. like we were like having the the importance of diversity to allow to play all different characters and to yeah. allow. A boring character, yeah, yeah. not to be like you said, those traditional roles. Yeah, that not white actors are being forced into playing. Yeah, yeah. Because you hear it all the time, don't you? Actors going to America, like oh, Riz yeah. Ahmed, for example, yeah. saying he just only ever got offered roles as a terrorist. Yeah, 
And the thing is, it's fine for Riz Ahmed to, pl- to play a terrorist if there are other roles yeah. Yeah. for him to play. I went up for something and I w- it was to play like a baddie in it. And um, I had a friend who was also going up for the role who's like, oh no, I don't really want to play a baddie because I don't want like black person to be seen as a baddie. I was like, I'm, I really want to play a baddie. Like, how fun would that be? Yeah. But it's the only reason why we have to check ourselves, which I think is really annoying, is because you go, oh, but there's not enough diversity. Mm. But I remember in Crashing, I was playing quite a sexy, sexy character. But because that's so far away from what I've ever been cast as, I'd, I was just like, it's character, it's fine. Mm. But I remember some people sort of thinking, that, you know, oh, you know, isn't it weird playing those sort of characters? I was like, as long as there's diversity, you can have people who are not bright. You can have people who um, are confident sexually or use sex for something else. Or, you know, like, all that can exist. It's when you keep seeing the same thing mm. that you're like, then it gets toxic and that's when it gets mm. a bit messy. But everything should exist, I think. It's yeah. important for people to see positive roles. Is it annoying constantly being asked? talk to us about diversity you, in TV is, is is that actually like a bit like I just want to do my job well, do you know what yeah yeah you're just like I just want to get on with it but there's a problem so you have to talk about it what I do feel sometimes even though things have got better you know for instance you look at um, chewing gum or you look at um, insecure there is this sort of notion of there's one so it's fine yeah. There's yeah. one that exists, so it's fine. The, the problem's been fixed. And it's like, mm. no, it's when we talk about uh, about diversity, it, it means so much more. Yeah. And I do think that there is a habit sometimes of patting people, certain people patting themselves on the back, going, "Well, we have one." It's like that's not what diversity. Well, it's is. like the women in comedy thing. Yeah, you've it's got like one. there's one on the panel. Great, done, done. Congratulations, everyone goes home happy. Mm. But it's like that's not what the world looks like. Well, like, I think the about the casting, isn't it, is to challenge every cast and be like, okay, well, why are we casting that as a yeah. non-white actor? And why are we not seeing, why can't Hamlet be from any background, yeah. gender, colour? Like, that's what we need to look at. And that's, it is hard because, of course, culturally, we've all watched the same programmes, we've yeah. all seen the same roles. It does take your brain time to go, oh, yeah, a woman could do that. Someone an I, actor who's not white could do that. I think the quickest way to subvert that is by people making the decisions being diverse groups of people yeah of course I think that is that's the quickest way because there'll be someone in the room who goes have you thought about this Mm. that is that will be foolproof Sarah Pascoe who we chatted to or rather you chatted to and I sat there and recorded you and told you to move the microphone away from the mic Sarah Sarah just adapted Pride and Prejudice for Nottingham Playhouse and they specifically went for complete diverse casting Mm -hmm. and yeah, and they very much wanted because Sarah was like, no one in the book ever says that they're white. It's never yeah. mentioned, so why can't they be? And we talked about something you bring up. They talked about that there'd been contra- controversy that yeah. it was a non-white Lizzie Bennet. Oh gosh! Again, at the time, surprised me. But then, then you both schooled me of like, yeah, Carrie, people get pissed off about it's things. Because me and Sarah are from Essex, so <laughs> yeah. we know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we know those people are out there. Yeah, um, yeah. But also, you see, you see it quite a lot. I said at the time, you know, the whole like Idris Elba being James yeah, Bond. Yeah, yeah, it really rattles people. Like, yeah, it's like, I find the character, but it's not quite right. It's like when John Boyega was announced he's going to be a stormtrooper, and everyone's oh, like, no. How could. It's like, really? Did they? Star yeah, Wars? Yeah. Star Wars. But I do think that when it comes to the thing that I find funny and, and why I love Crazy Head is like when it comes to sort of supernatural sci-fi or whatever mm. like if there is ever a universe which could be diverse it's that one 
And yeah. so it really makes me laugh when people go, but no! Because you're like, these things aren't real. There's They're talking not talking cool. robots. Like, there is a man who's just... Well, I'm not, a, 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 a Wookiee. Like, yeah. what is a Wookiee? Yeah, I don't know. I can yeah. tell you. I, could, I literally can tell <laughs> then, That's the thing. It's sort of like, oh, you know, if we have... A, you know diversity whether it's oh you know there's this person who's in a wheelchair and they're in this show is it saying something you just that's what people get scared about mm. is that they think that viewers will watch something and go why what what sort of political statement are they trying to make by that person being in it and you just sort of go no there's no no they're all because they have talent people yeah. have talent mm. and you just have to trust that so okay. how long is the play running for and where can our listeners see it <laughs> you can well it's running until the 2nd of December so we've only got a few weeks left you can go on the website Labour of Love the play google it it's there Noel Carrot Theatre um, and we have m- the most important thing we have a £10 day seats every day from 10.30 so you can get really really brilliant seats for only a tenner thank you yeah excellent and is there anything else coming up where else might where we can we see follow you in the social future oh, I'm, I'm sorry, probably just see me on twitter anyway it's um, um susan <laughs> underscore we're going back. um yes uh, there, there is one other thing i just did a pilot with matt berry and um, oh so yes got, which is yeah. another historical it's the first corset I've ever worn, <gasps> That's and I was so I put it on, and I was like, ah, "You can keep this. Yeah, yeah. I don't want it. Oh, it fucking hurts." It has a couple of working titles, and it's uh, it's about a Victorian murder squad. Mm-hmm. So it was a excellent. Yeah. Susan McComber, thank you very much, um, you and you, Carrie, for your yeah. all the fucking time. <laughs> <laughs> at Lady Carrie, guys, or at Carrie Lloyd for Instagram stories. Yeah, 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 yeah. They know. Hello, Dottie Winters here with my top tips for St Andrew's Day. It is a well-known fact that nothing makes us prouder of our country of origin than a decision to spend our lives many miles away from it. Overall, we Brits have an uneasy relationship with open displays of patriotism. We tend to leave it to the Americans, like customer service, mass shootings and pumpkin spicing all of the foods. But there is lots we can learn from our American cousins, not least that you don't really have to be very Scottish at all to claim it as your heritage and use it as an excuse to high camp it up while mainlining tenants lager. As St Andrew's Day approaches, Scottish people across the globe will be being 46% more Scottish than usual in celebration of our national saint. Meanwhile, in Scotland, it is testament to the strength of feeling about St Andrew's Day that it's now marked as a bank holiday albeit one where the banks are still open and where employers aren't required to give anyone any time off. That's right, nothing smashes Scottish stereotypes more effectively than the world's most penny-pinching public holiday. UK Saints' Days have a distinctive flavour, familiar to all of us. St Patrick's Day is celebrated with unrestrained drinking whilst painted green. St David's Day is a festival of leeks, daffodils and fancy dress. St George's is a day for whinging about our lack of bank holidays and trying to find a talk show that isn't discussing whether or not our flag is racist. And of course, we celebrate St Andrew's Day by... By... But... Nope, I've got nothing. No fucker knows. This is great news for Scottish people, or people who have Scottish ancestry, or even people who just prefer their team sports to be as violent as possible. St Andrew's Day is a day with almost no traditions, which means we can celebrate it however we like and threaten to nut anyone who disagrees. Here are my top tips on how to celebrate the shit out of St Andy. Tip 1. 
Do what loads of people do and just have a practice burns night. No bugger will know the difference and you get double haggis. If you prefer your haggis without neeps, go wild and stick it in a cheese toasty or a tiramisu. Follow up with as many Tunnock's tea cakes as you can manage. And remember, they are mainly air, so you don't need to include them on my fitness pal. Tip two, wear flat shoes and get angry if anyone challenges you on anything. According to ex-Scotland football manager Gordon Strachan recently, the men's team lack of success was due to their diminutive height. He claimed that we Scots are genetically disadvantaged in this regard. This clearly isn't true, just ask actual giants Nicola Sturgeon, Ruth Davidson and Jeanette Cranky. But the 30th November is as good a day as any to get your excuses in early. Tip 3. Cosplay at Comic Con, but as the Bruins. Everyone will think you're so cool that you are into something they haven't discovered yet, they'll probably throw you a parade. Tip 4. Spend all day pointing at shit and telling people that Scotland invented it. That telly, that steam train, the telephone, sticky stamps, rainfall, violence, oxbow lakes, your mother. Tip 5. Tell everyone that John Barrowman is Welsh. He may be adorable, but keeping him entertained is exhausting. Someone else needs to take a turn for a bit. Tip 6. Declare yourself independent. Look, we all know referendums are hard, not to mention expensive and a logistical nightmare. Limit the hassle by undertaking a small-scale pilot. Ask yourself if you're independent. If you are, accept the result and sing Independent Women by Destiny's Child for the rest of the day. Tip 7. Strip naked and yell about freedom. Across the globe, William Wallace is one of our best-known figureheads. Sadly, mainly the Braveheart version. Show everyone how to do it better by painting your nudie doody self blue and shouting a lot, but by not being Mel Gibson or an anti-Semite. Sure, you'll get some funny looks, but I guarantee the other mums on the school run won't try to talk to you about the Christmas fair. Tip 8. Remind anyone who will listen that our national animal is the mother-flipping unicorn. That's right, folks. We were well into unicorns long before they were cool. Cover yourself in Pritstick and run through Claire's accessories until you're covered in sparkly unicorns. Job done. Tip 9. Have some more Tunnock's tea cakes just to be safe. Not the wafer biscuits, though. They're wrong. Just the tea cakes. Tip 10. Swear all fucking day. Scottish people invented swearing. Right. That should do it. Let's do all these things and start some new traditions. I reckon initially we might have to style it out a bit to get these customs properly embedded. But just pull on your big girl tartan pants, pack up your cagoule, and remember to threaten to nut anyone who stands in the way of our glorious celebration. Happy St Andrew's Day, Dotty out. Uh, uh. Question. I'm not answering that. Hello, this is Sarah Millican, and you are listening to Sarah Millican's Question Time. If you hear a slight rustling while I'm chatting to you, that's because I am currently getting my hair done, and I am wearing one of those kind of black plastic things around my neck. Uh, so if you hear rustling and you think, is she in some leaves? Is she beside a squirrel? It's not. It's because I'm wearing a fucking cape. I am some kind of superhero with excellent roots or will soon have excellent roots the question that i got this week from uh, is from lucy daniels on twitter and the question it's really interesting one for me is why no cheese that's the, that's it that's the whole question why no cheese now that's not something that really comes up for me because you've said that really confidently lucy is if you think that both of those are a viable option how little you know me lucy daniels off of the twitter i i don't like wine 
or cheese. <laughs> so the only time I'd ever say wine or cheese is if somebody said to me, oh God, what would you hate if you, like, if you had to eat something, what would be the worst things you'd have to eat? And I'd go, wine or cheese? Cheese is just the scrapings of an old man's sock put on a cracker and wine is petrol in a glass um so i put to you a different question my answer to your question lucy is no neither but (laughs) my question to you if i may be so bold is juice or butter so in you could have ribena if you want to pretend you have like vimto if you want to pretend you're having wine but you could have any kind of juice apple orange cranberry if you've got problems with your nethers and um, my sister once told me that cranberry juice was good for cystitis and i remember genuinely thinking it's really expensive that's going to be really really mad expensive to fill a bath because i thought you had to dunk your fanny in it i didn't realize you just drank it and it went through the other way um uh, <laughs> is that too much? No. Um, so you can have any kind of juice and butter. I mean, if somebody said to you at the end of a meal, do you want a pudding or do you want just like some butter in your hand? I think that would be a tricky choice and I'll bloody love a pudding. So my question to you, Lucy Daniels, and feel free to reply to me on the Twitter. I'll keep an eye out for it. Is juice or butter? Thank you very much for your questions this week, guys. Take care. Bye. If you'd like me to answer one of your questions, then tweet us at Standard Issue UK using the hashtag SMQT. Thank you. Standard issue for all women. I miss my kids about money. I miss cocaine, warm food. I miss. Um, I miss. 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 I've got a rules, I miss. Vodka. Drinking, dry shopping, and at the same time, I miss. I miss skullduggery. I miss drugs. I miss landscapes. The sea. The sky. I miss my friends. I miss being good to me. I miss going to nice places. I miss change. Warm food. Getting stuff done. Being treated with respect. Hello, I'm Sam Wanfall, and that was an extract from Key Change, a powerful play from all-female theatre company Open Clasp, which was devised and developed with women inmates from Low Newton Prison in the North East. It premiered in 2015, touring male prisons before going to Edinburgh, New York, the Houses of Parliament, and then going on to a sell-out UK tour. And now the piece is set to go truly global, when it's streamed as part of the United Nations campaign to end violence against women on November the 25th. Since co-founding the company in 1998, Katrina McHugh has been forging ahead with its goal to change the world for the better, one play at a time. I caught up with the very fast-talking Katrina to talk about key change at Open Clasp's offices at the West End Women and Girls Centre in Newcastle. It was just a few days after she'd been to the palace to pick up her MBE for services to disadvantaged women. I accepted that MBA on behalf of all the women that had put their trust in the company over the last 19 years, because it's 19 years this year. So I was really honoured to accept the award. And actually, surprisingly, I was quite emotional in the moment. And I was really nervous. I was more nervous than I thought I was going to be, and uh, and more overwhelmed than I thought I was going to be. I did the kids, you know, I went over to it. And then she was putting the medal on, and I prepared what I was going to say, and I was all... I'm going to tell her about key change. I'd heard she tweeted as well, has done once. <laughs> so I turned around and I said, look, you must be really proud. And I was going, 
we had just been on this massive journey. I said, we won the best of Edinburgh. I said, we ended up in New York, and now we're about to go global with the backing of the United Nations. And she went, really? She said, it's gone that big? And I was going, yeah, it's gone really big. And I was like, I hear your tweet. I was like, would you mind tweeting about the show? <laughs> and I don't really remember what she said back. And I think she laughed and shook my hand. When everybody said she was laughing when she was talking, just out of my box totally in terms of what was expected of me when I left school at 16. Yeah. And then to be in the palace, meeting the Queen, getting a medal on behalf of all the women that we'd worked with. I was all, it was just the surrealist moment. But I managed not to fall over. I managed to put my Doc Martin boots on when I got to the palace gates. I managed to leave, had free food, drank champagne. Sounds perfect. It was great. <laughs> it was really good. But the whole thing about key change and, you know, it started from a really small project and then it's turned into this kind of huge project. But it's kind of three years now, isn't it, since, yeah, since it's 2014. Yeah. So did you have any kind of ambitions for it in terms of now what's happened? No, not in the moment because it... Cause it, we, we had a brief, so it was somebody else's idea, and so we were kind of given the brief to go into the prison, to work with the women, to support them to create and perform a show, and, and then for us to take that show out of the prison, and then tour it to men's prisons. It's a short project in its entirety, it's from the January, and we finished the beginning of June of that year. We met them in the chapel um, on the Friday each week, um, and then we just put our faith in the uh, the methodology of the company in terms of the drama techniques that we would use to create a safe space for discussion. And we just started and we took every session and we were just in the moment, so what happens in this session, what happens in the next session, what do you want to do next week, what do you want to look at? And then they created the first character was Lucy and they pulled on their own experiences to create Lucy. Um, but you know, our, our job was to make sure that they trusted us and trusted each other to share their own experiences of their lives. We had no idea what they were going to say to us, what they were going to share, because and everything in terms of how the company works, always led by the women. It's always led by the women and girls, whatever they want to talk about. And they went, we don't want to talk about prison and we don't want to talk about domestic violence. We didn't think about the product and we never do as an organisation. We just think about the moment when we're with the women and they are the most important people in that room and they are the experts in their own experiences. It was eight sessions, so four days and eight sessions and then I stopped and wrote the first draft of that play in a week. The women then were offered the opportunity to perform us. There was a team of us kind of supporting the women then to put up on its feet and they were always at the forefront of the performing inside the prison and we were there to support that. They performed it to the, the women in the prison. The women had trusted us so much, they talked about domestic violence and they talked about life in prison. So when you say, to begin with, they said, we don't want to talk about domestic violence, was domestic violence part of the brief? I think the hope for the people who commissioned it, which was Dilly Arts as an organisation who commissioned it, I think their hope would be that that's what would be highlighted in the piece. But we didn't lead on that. We did, kind of didn't go, this is what the play needs to be about, because that's not how we work. In all the 19 years of the company's life, every time we go into a community, we don't go in with an issue, but we always come up with the issue of domestic violence. And it was a common kind of theme within the group of women we worked with. There's a lot of kind of a research which goes, there's a direct link between domestic violence and life in prison. And when we were working with the women, you could see their different journeys. There was two characters, core characters in the group. So one was Lucy, the first character, and then we had the character of Angie created. And she was created because when the women, some of the women had been kicked out at 16, had experienced abuse as children, 
Um, I'm not saying it's all women, obviously, but they had used heroin. So some of the women in the group had used heroin, some of the women hadn't. So then they become, some of the women go, and, well, Lucy would never use heroin, and some of the women would go, well, Lucy would use heroin. So then it created Angie. So they had some space to talk about their use of heroin and how that had kind of informed their life journey as well. So Angie has multiple partners who perpetrate domestic violence against her. She gets involved in sex work. And so you can map her, uh, her journey. So at 16, she miscarries the baby. Uh, she's offered heroin by other people who are 16. Because young people go and have this drug, it'll make you feel better. She smokes the first bit of heroin, gets involved in the heroin, then gets involved in multiple partners. So the kind of journey goes that way. And then Lucy's character, she meets somebody, she falls in love, this person is older than he, she thinks this is going to be okay. Then he perpetrates violence against her. So that represented the kind of ripple within the room in terms of both of the experiences. So they performed, the, the women themselves performed it for their fellow yeah. inmates and that was brilliant and you hear one of the women who's on the 25th of November where um, obviously it's going to be um, the screening of Key Change is going to be at the Townside Cinema and um, Cheryl Byron's going to be there so she's out, out of prison now and she was our one of our performers in the piece and she was amazing the piece as were the other women but what you can hear her say is that when she um, uh, after the performance went back into the prison because I interviewed her when she came out and I said, what was it like? And she, she just walked in and she became the theatre maker. No longer the prisoner, no longer the offender, but the theatre maker. And her shoulders were high. And she walked around with pride inside that prison, as did the other women. And then we went to the men's prisons. So we did eight performances in the men's prisons. Bearing in mind, we had never been in a men's prison before. So we went into the men's prisons and it was like we were working with men saving life for really hard crimes. And then um, people on the mat, you know, so every, it was a bit like doing the making of the play. We just took every day as it came when we were on the tour, not thinking anything outside the project at all. And then we went to live theatre and we put it up on the stage. And the women, you'll see the actors, they're just in greys, they're just in grey tracksuits. And we had lights for the first time, we had a sound system for the first time, and it was beautiful. And you could hear the women as if they'd just flown over the razor wire and they were inside the theatre. And we were all going, oh my, I could even feel tearful now thinking about it. Because me and Laura were sitting there going, oh my God, the women are literally on stage. And it's this beautiful piece of theatre. 19 years, we have never done a play that's one hour, with no set, with just tape and three chairs. And we sat as an organisation, our board of trustees, and when this could be the play, we could take to the Edinburgh Festival. And we'd never been before, we never performed it before. We were supported by Northern Stage. We had a really good venue, a good team, but we had no idea what was going to happen next. And then the reviews came in. And then we got you know, four stars, and then we got five stars, and then we got the phone call from America. We'd been shortlisted for the Carol Tamber. Best of Edinburgh Award, and if you win, you'll end up in New York. The night before the ceremony, we went into a women's prison in Edinburgh. We went into a prison called Cotton Vale, and we went in, and which was really good for us as a company because we've been in the Edinburgh Festival, and I'd gone and done workshops and refuges while we were there. We'd made sure we'd invited everybody who had an interest in alternatives to prison for women and had come as audiences, so politically we were kind of moving in that kind of area while we were there. But we went to this women's prison in Court and Vale and it was just like a breath of fresh air. It was like going back to Lower Newton Prison. These women were going, oh, there's my life on stage. Oh, there's me. And we went to the um, ceremony the next day and 
and then it got announced when we won, and then we all went up on stage, and it was just pure magic. And then, we had, then the hard work happened. Then we had to then meet New York, and it's a Cinderella story in lots of ways, but it was hard work. But we did what we do here: is we linked with everybody that we could, and we just started to network and squirrel around in New York, and then we got those audiences as well, as well as theatre-going audiences in New York. We got all of those people, but we had reviews in every night. At the same time as all this happening. The professor over there is trying to get us into a prison in New York, in Connecticut. And then the New York Times came through, and, and, and the, the, our sponsors, Carol Tambor, she said, did you see you got the, the critics' pick? I have no idea what that meant, really, at all. <laughs> kind of going, oh, OK, OK. But then we got into the prison in Connecticut, and that was just the highlight. The Gore didn't, didn't know the content of the play. There's drug smuggling in there. It's set inside a prison. There's strong language. It's the women's point of view of prison. It, it's a show that really shouts their voices, hears their voices. So we kind of, the actors are on stage, the governor doesn't know what's going on. We kind of stood at the back. As soon as the performance starts, like Colton Vale and like, you know, a lot of community audiences that are actually that we work with, it's an interaction. So they're kind of going, on into that. Respect. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, one of the actors goes in, characters goes, I, uh, I, I wish I was treated with respect and they got no men to that and then there's the moment when the women are put in segregation and then one of the women goes this shit is global and that became the tagline for us while we were there and has since because it's universal because they have experiences of domestic violence it's limits to prison what it feels like when you're in prison is, 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 is felt across the world so we kind of knew that it translated over to America and to those women and we connected then New York to Edinburgh to the northeast, and we felt really proud of that connection. We could hear all the voices. Then we went after New York, we came back to Lone Noon Prison, and then we shared that story with Lone Noon. And we've continued to go back and forward with Lone Noon. And um, we've key changed it, I think, when we did the national tour. So we got our national um, tour, our first national tour, went to the House of Parliament. We were looking at a white paper at the, at the time about reform in prison. So we were kind of in that moment, and, you know. And that was like a total honour. And then we did the national tour. And, it, you know, the actors will tell you that when they went round, they didn't only get a standing ovation for the show, but they got a standing ovation for the post-show. So the politics behind it, the process to make the show, the stories of the women. And now we're about to go global. So it's the same thing. Squirreling away in New York, we're squirreling away in the world now. So we've kind of got all the academics working with us. And we've got different partners, people who like the art as well. So it's not even though I talk very passionately about the piece and the issues in the piece, the art is beautiful. It's a stunning piece of theatre. We've got it going to Adelaide, we've got it in America, we've got it in the Solomon Islands. So people are hosting screenings everywhere and people are embedding it in their, um, in their websites. So the United Nations uh, United Nations women are embedding it in their website, the Penal Reform International are, um, the British Council are. Uh, I mean, it's just like a long list of people. So with the trailer alone, we've reached 14,000 people. We estimate maybe 100,000 people will see it. But potentially, if everybody watches it, whatever it's embedded, then potentially we've got over a million people being able to see Key Change. And it's not only about seeing the art, it's about joining in that debate. It's about going, because it's part of, it's marking the United Nations campaign to end violence against women and girls, the 16 days of activism, and leading up to the 10th of December. And it's about contribute to that big debate and the debate you know the United Nations are saying it's we need to think that domestic violence is inevitable that's preventable and it, and it needs to be positive conversation not just about the reality of what it is which is one thing but also then 
even just reading that and knowing that it's preventable. Like, I don't even know whether we've got that in our heads. I think a lot of the time we feel it's just part of us or it's part of our world that we live in. After 19 years, I still want my jaw to drop every time I hear about it. I still want to feel that rage that it happens in somebody else's life with the, to their children and to them on, on all levels. I kind of then go, this needs to stop. One in three across the world experience it. And you just go, why, are people, why do people feel entitled to do that to another human being? Why do we think that that is just the way it is? But if we don't invest, we will always have domestic violence. We always have maids and we'll always have kids being maids or kids into that threat from people who are supposed to love them. Do you think there's a lot of life in the play yet? So it goes out now for 16 days. But also, somebody has just bought the rights to the script in Los Angeles. There's women in Los Angeles who are going to perform it. So that's going to happen next year. There's loads of schools going to be watching it now, and loads of educational establishments watching it now. Then we want to talk about how it can be part of the national curriculum, because we're being asked about that. I don't really know what's next. Other than I just really hope that it reaches a million. I hope people watch it across the world. I would like it to be really important we're in that we're really in a special moment a very unique moment and i really hope that this becomes even more special with this 16 days the 25th of november 10th of december so that was the brilliant katrina McHugh. and if you'd like to see key change it's going to be streamed live to audiences across the world at 7 p.m on november the 25th to mark the united nations campaign to end violence against women it will also be available to watch online throughout the UN's 16 Days of Activism campaign, which goes on from the 25th of November until the 10th of December. You can find the film at OpenClasp's website, which is www.openclasp.org.uk forward slash productions forward slash key hyphen change. And there's also going to be a string of live events all over the world. So keep an eye out for those. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny Off The Blocks. Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that part of the week where we jump on the runners and speed through the labyrinth of oppression as we talk all things women's sport. And yes, I did Google bobsleigh terminology this morning. Um, We've got a lot to get through this week, so let's crack on. First up, this morning uh, we were, and this morning I mean when I recorded this, not when you're listening to this, uh, we awoke to the sad news about the death of Wimbledon champion Jana Novotna, who had been suffering from cancer. She won She won Wimbledon back in 1998, I believe, um, but this is the enduring image of her, which you may or may not know, was after losing the Wimbledon final I think in 1992 or 1993 and um, having a little bit of a cry about it and and being counselled by uh, the Duchess of Kent who said to her, maybe not now, but, you know, your your time's going to come. And, and indeed it did. So obviously that's very sad news and we wish her family well. The Mark Sampson effect continued to rumble on in women's football this week. In fairness, not that we particularly feel the need to spare Sampson, but this is actually the Lee Kendall effect and very much the Football Association effect. But anyway, so anyone listening to this podcast on a regular basis will know all about this, but a brief summary for any newbies. The England women's football manager, Mark Sampson, was sacked a month or so ago after the FA found a review which was conducted about a previous role but took place very much while he was the England manager into safeguarding concerns related to him which found that 
While he did not pose any risk, they did uncover evidence of inappropriate and unacceptable behaviour with female players. But this came after he'd already twice been found um, to have, I don't know, innocent, or I think the wording was uh, there were no wrongdoings on his part, against allegations of using racially discriminatory language against players Enia Luko and Drew Spence, which he was then subsequently found very much to be guilty of and had to apologise for. And the FA have faced criticism from pretty much everyone over this absolute clusterfuck which also, by the way, involved paying Aluko a fuck ton of cash to keep quiet about it. But it went on. The team's goalkeeping coach, Lee Kendall, who was also investigated after it alleged he'd spoken to Aluko, who is of Nigerian heritage, in a mock Caribbean accent, which, well, I mean, Jesus... <laughs> Aluko had said she thought he was ignorant rather than deliberately offensive, but that it was worth highlighting the culture within the organisation and, you know, absolutely fair play. So Kendall resigned from his post last week, curiously, after the FA said no further action would be necessary, having concluded a four-week investigation into his conduct, though the statement neglected to mention that Kendall had in fact admitted to the accusations against him. So when asked by The Guardian to explain why they omitted this information from their statement and if it was intended to effectively cover up behaviour by one of their coaches, they declined to comment, according to the newspaper. So it's kind of incredible, really. I mean, who is doing the FA's comms slash policy slash all work? Have they spent so much money on legal fees that the entire backroom staff consists of ferrets dancing on a keyboard while Martin Glenn and Greg Clark just cross their fingers and hope for the best? Or is the organisation so arrogant that it just has zero fucks to give about the pretty serious allegations against them? It sort of, I don't know, for me it really raises interesting questions about police in the police, I suppose, which we'll all remember from a lovable rogue, in inverted commas, Set Blatter's time as the head of FIFA. Clearly, what we're looking at here is not a democracy and, well, you all know how that ends. Well, at least Robert Mugabe does, but anyway... It's not just shit for the players, but it also undermines their achievements because it deflects attention from the huge steps that have been made in women's football in the last couple of years, as Wales women's coach Jane Ludlow pointed out this week. But some happier news. The Rugby Football Union announced a new payment structure this week uh, for match and training fees for England's women's players taking part in the Autumn International Series against Canada. So that deal includes match and training fees for all players involved in the 15s games, despite it having been announced earlier this year that they would no longer be employed by the RFU with under under full-time contracts. So the decision was made by the RFU to focus more on the Rugby Sevens game instead because that's an Olympic sport now. So I guess, you know, I don't know. I think in some respects that kind of makes sense. It gets more attention. It's a better platform for women. Um, but obviously pretty shit for the others. But anyway, I mean, this is good news, right? That someone's decided that their players still deserve to be paid for doing a job. But... It's still not a contract, is it? I mean, someone should probably tell the RFU about that zero-hour contract shit. Like, you know, it's really bad, guys, actually. Bad, yeah. Especially when it's being reported that a bird is going to get paid between four to £5,000 for a test while a guy is getting up to 
£22,000 for a test. Bitch, please, come on. That is more than a 9.1% difference. Apparently, most of us ladies work for over a month for free in a year, compared to our male counterparts, that is. Ladies, you are working three quarters of the fucking year for zip. I'm kind of sick of bad news now, so I'm not going to dwell on it too much. Uh, Or, in fact, on England losing the Ashes to Australia, or rather, Australia retaining the Ashes because they weren't technically ours to lose in the first place. So let's end with some good news, which is that the International Olympic Committee and UN Women have renewed their already five-year partnership on sport for gender equality, which aims to empower women and girls through sport and increase women's leadership and gender equality. The UN Women Executive Fumzil Malambo Nakuka said that is a horrible pronunciation I'm sure, I'm sure so sorry about that uh, she said sport is an invaluable tool to equip women and girls with leadership skills reduce marginalisation and dismantle stereotypes together we can bring substantive equality to the world of sport at all levels and I am very hopeful that someone will be telling the RFU and indeed the FA about this A massive shout-out, while we're on good news, to the Nigerian women's bobsleigh team who qualified for the Pyeongchang Olympics last week, which had sports journalists everywhere flapping about cool runnings as if they hadn't just reported on any Aluko and Lee Kendall. We assume they mean in a triumph over adversity kind of a way as opposed to not understanding the difference between Nigeria and Jamaica kind of a way. The victory makes them the first ever African team to contest the bobsleigh and the first ever Nigerian team to take part at a Winter Olympics, which is obviously tremendous stuff, so well done. Finally, a huge congratulations to 56-year-old Gina O'Keefe, the mother of standard-issued listener Rosemary O'Keefe, who won medals aplenty alongside teammate Jenny Whitcomb at the International Kettlebell Lifting Championships last week. The team travelled all the way to Seoul in South Korea at their own expense in order to compete, so that's got to be worthy of a resounding big up. That's it from me this week. I'll be back in a couple of weeks' time and hopefully, hopefully, fingers crossed, I won't have anything to say about the Football Association next time. If you've got anything you want us to cover in terms of sport or any opinions you want to put out there, then give me a shout. I'm on the Twitter at InspiraGen. Speak to you. Oh, no, not speak to you. Uh, Yeah. Thanks. Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disney. Dunleavy, what Disney did you do this week? This week, in honour of St Andrew's Day, I watched 2012's Brave, which is one of Disney's films made through Pixar animations, which is actually the first one of the Pixar Disney films that we've done in Dunleavy Does Disney. It is, isn't it? To be clear, it's not the first one that was made. Mm -hmm. It's just the first one that, that we've done. Was Toy Story the first one? Made. I think Toy Story is the first one. Possibly Toy Story. Have you guys seen it? None. Yes, I have seen it and I am still smiling. Did you like it? You know what? I loved it. I I really, really did. And I know that you might be thinking it's because it's Pixar and Pixar films are different to traditional Disney films because they have the sort of humour that's like actually funny and they remember that there are adults watching and try to cater to it. Mm -hmm. But actually... Of all the Pixar films I've seen, this is the most recognisably Disney of them in that it has... It has sort a of, princess. Yeah, it has a princess and it has sort of the sort of formulaic 
like storyline telling and it has the music in the certain places. Uh, whereas a lot of things like Toy Story and Cars and Finding Nemo, they function much more as sort of ensemble, like, I know ensemble sounds like a ridiculous word to use when you talk about animation. No, it's but true. But there are a lot of characters that yes. are in- integral to it, whereas Disney films traditionally have, you know, just the, sort of the one story that's going yeah. through it and that's it. So it, it is the most Disney. But obviously that doesn't mean um, that's a bad film, you know, because since I started doing this, I've actually had a couple of people say to me, oh, I need to, I've got a kid tonight mm. I'm looking after or, you know, I've got a friend that's really into Disney films, like, and they want me to watch one with them. Like, what's the most bearable out of all of them? And I've been saying, you know, like, Pinocchio. Um, well done. Yeah. The Rescuers. It's... But I would certainly add Brave to that list. But actually, more than that, I'd say, if you actually ever find yourself with nothing to do, you don't have to have a kid in the room, find yourself with nothing to do and you come across Brave, child or not, watch it, because it is completely charming. I've got to say, it's become one of my favourite films. I absolutely fell in love with it. It was just just wonderful and fierce and followed brilliant women who wanted to forge their own path. Yeah. And it was it's just a remarkable film. Well, I'm not going to do too much of a plot description because that would take up too much time. But the long and the short of it... Jen, you're looking very confused, Well, I haven't fucking seen it, so, you know. Okay, well, the long, and the, short, the long and the short of it is it's <laughs> set in medieval Scotland mm-hmm. and it's about a teenage girl who doesn't want to get married. Oh, which isn't just revolutionary for Disney. It's actually pretty revolutionary, full stop. I thought you were going to say for Scotland. No, full stop. I was yeah. genuinely sitting here thinking of other pieces of fiction that has, as its central premise, a, a girl who doesn't want to get married. And the only one I could think of, I mean, there might be more. People can like tweet me if they want to say it. The only one I could think of was Jamaica Inn, which I've talked about this before. I bloody loved as a teenager precisely because it was about a woman who wanted to live outside of the gender norms. So to see that in a Disney film is pretty startling. The other thing that's quite extraordinary about Brave, or and again, for a, certainly for a Disney film, is that it's about mothers and daughters. Most Disney films, the mother has been removed from the picture. She's mm. like either dead before it starts, like The Little Mermaid, Pocahontas, or she dies during it, like Bambi, or she's removed from the, the scene of the action, like the mad elephant in yeah. Dumbo. But in this, she's not just present. She's absolutely integral to the plot. In fact, no one dies at the beginning. Well, that's a big thing with Disney films, that someone dies. And you kind of think someone might have done, because it's like they're playing on their own trope. Yeah. And then the, the little rug pulls, and it's yeah. all right. It's just, he's just got a pirate leg now. Yeah. And, and the other great, another, not the other, another great thing about this film is that Merida, the princess... Although, when said with a Scottish accent, it does slightly sound, sound like murder. 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 There's been a murder. She's been in Taggart quite a yeah. lot, yeah. Oh, my God, I promise not a shit um, Scottish accent, but there we've, you go. We've all failed on that. Yeah. Sorry. She's, yeah. she's the princess, Merida the princess, and her mother, the queen, are played by Kelly MacDonald and Emma Thompson. Now, oh, I would actually watch any that. film that that was the premise, even if the age gap isn't necessarily mm. what it should be. Fun fact here, Merida was supposed to be played by Rhys Shearsmith. No, <laughs> that would be hilarious. <laughs> that, <that'd> be weird. <laughs> By Reese Witherspoon. But she dropped out when she didn't feel that her Scottish accent was up to scratch, which is actually really laudable, and it's frankly something that should happen more often in Hollywood. Kevin Costner should have said, hey, dudes, I'm not getting this accent right. Perhaps I'll get oh, someone no, else. Oh, no, but I love Robin Hood, Prince I'll not allow this wedding to proceed. <laughs> Sorry, that's to... an actual Scottish man. Let's yeah. go to Nottingham. So then the role went to Kelly MacDonald, who we all know 
is absolutely tremendous. And certainly to my mind, she is the best actress ever to play a Disney princess. She's great. She's just, it's just great. It's hard to, it's hard to say anything other than it's fucking brilliant. I mean, she looks wildly different as well in as much as she is actually a fucking state most of the time. She she really is. She has a lot of crap in her hair. She has got tears in her dress. She is not immaculately presented. She doesn't like it when they put her in a pretty dress. No. She is not happy M- about More it. importantly, I mean, she has her own agency. Like, we've said that about women in Disney films before, but this is... She's good at a lot of stuff, and it's stuff that's mostly shown in Disney films as boy stuff, like climbing, horse riding, archery. But I think the best example of it is she gets trapped in a tower at some point, which is a tr- Disney trope. Does she wait for someone to come and save her? No, she sets about smashing the shit out of the door (laughs) herself with a poker in an attempt to get out, which is, like I say, about the most laudable message sent to girls in a Disney film ever. So, yeah, hooray for Kelly MacDonald, hooray for Emma Thompson. The rest of the cast is pretty great, too. Julie Walters is there, Billy Connolly's there, Kevin McKinnon's there. Julie Walters? Julie Walters is the witch. But of course, they've got Scottish accents, so you don't always recognise who they are. Uh, and she's not even a, she's not an evil witch; she's a clever witch. Yeah. What I didn't know, which I found out the other day, because I was googling Emma Thompson, as you do, is that she is sort of Scottish herself. Is she? Yeah, her mum is Scottish, and she half she apparently spends like half her time in Scotland, and basically has done like her entire life. So she's sort of Scottish. Well, her accent as Eleanor is pretty flawless. Mm, yeah, great. Well, that's why. Yeah. And actually, like another thing about Brave is the parents are like a reasonable age difference to the child. Yeah. To the yeah. children. Billy Connolly is the dad. So when Hannah had said, Oh, I'm going to watch Brave this time, and I said, Oh, it's the one set in Scotland, she said, Joe, and I went, Is Billy Connolly in it? She was like, Of course he is. And I was like, Okay. <laughs> and he's the dad. And um, Emma Thompson's the mum. And they're not, they're not great. Eleanor's got, Queen Eleanor's got a grey streak, a classy yeah. grey kind of um, Bride of Frankenstein streak. But apart from that, they're not like Mrs. Potts. They're not 105 and their kid's four. They could legitimately have spawned a child of the age. And there's actually proper love and affection and romance shown between the parents still, which is really lovely too, to the point where the kids are like, stop it, mum, stop it, dad, which is pretty cute. They obviously, they want her to get married. Mm. And that's not as bothered. He's kind of like, he's more supportive of her being what would have in previous days been called a tomboy, I suppose. They're trying to force her into an arranged marriage as such, which is the point. Mm. And keep all the clans from going yeah. to war together. And like, the, sorry, the to go princes, to war against each other. The princes that turn up, the selection, they, I mean, it is really funny. I have to say. It is, there's a lot of brawling and drinking. And I wonder the, what Scottish people think of it. I, I don't know. It, feel affection, it does feel affectionately done. And it does, I, I don't think it's specifically Scottish. I mean, if you look at things like, you know, Game of Thrones and Lord say, of the Rings, there's always that kind of medieval, all men must be drinking mead and fighting. I was just attitude. thinking it's kind of a cross between Highlander and yeah. Game of Thrones. Yeah, but with no, none of the filthy stuff. Even though I think Mumford and Sons were actually involved in some of the music. Sorry, what? That doesn't even spoil it for me, which is quite something. And we've talked so long and we have still not mentioned the fact that there were bears in it. Yeah. Amazing bears. bears. And... The animation-wise, the hair and the fur is just incredibly... I want to know if she got married or not, because I'm assuming eventually they just fucking make her get married anyway. No. 
No, she Is changes. She no. changes tradition. She actually breaks tradition and says, "I'm going to break with tradition." And her and her mum, between them, after a big old adventure and well, mid adventure. Yeah. She breaks with tradition and goes, I'm not going to do this anymore. We're going to stop. And they she, stop the patriarchy. Does she say, I'm not going to be... Does she sit in a press conference and say, I'm not yeah. going to be the person people It's kind of a be press anymore. conference. Yeah. It's like she stands up amid the, yeah. the Is brawling... Is it loosely based on the Martin Scorsese Chanel I advert? I don't think so. No. Okay. But, I mean, she does... It's important to say, like, actually, the difference with Jamaica Rain is Jamaica Rain, her point was she never wanted to get married. That's not quite her point here. Her point is she didn't want to get married, A, now, and B, to somebody that she wasn't of her choosing. Mm. So you would think, in, the, in back in the day, Disney would have done this thing where there had been a, a fourth option, you know, who turned up late and revealed himself to actually be, like, a prince. And they would go great and they would get bar- married. You know, the idea of yeah, Belle. Yeah. Belle spent all her time going, oh, I want to go into the Great Wide Open. Three days later, she's living in a castle with yeah. some guy and married, and it's, like, boring. So yeah. all of that nonsense is dispensed with um actually i have another fun fact which just makes me love this film even more merida but she is now a disney princess Mm -hmm. right so disney said okay in that case we're going to put her on our merchandising you know on our disney like merchandising here are the princesses she will be on it and when they did that she was what i can only describe as tamed as in her hair was less curly and she was thinner and there was a campaign to say Hey Disney, fuck that, which included the film's director, who is a woman, Brenda Chapman, and Disney actually backed down and changed it. So well done, those women, and that does give you hope that there is a, a different, a different Disney, yeah, coming Although possibly. Brave is before Frozen, right? Brave is before Frozen because Merida is. I mean, she's still. Skinny. She's a teenage girl. And she's yeah. depicted as skinny with wild red hair, but she's fit and strong and active and runs around yeah. and does stuff. And she's still got like the tiny nose and the big eyes, but yeah. she just seems more real. If that doesn't sound yeah. ridiculous about a cartoon character, um, she just, and Eleanor seems Eleanor again is she's she's a slim woman. The men actually they go to town a bit. They're the ones with all the caricatures, yeah. like the Billy Connolly character, the King is just he's just a barrel, yeah, <laughs> with one wooden with leg, with two really small legs, one yeah, of which is made of wood. wood, yeah. And the princes are all ridiculous looking, yeah. The one who you there's one, and he's so I'm going to say sort of so Glaswegian that you can't <laughs> understand a word he says, and even his dad's like. All right, son. <laughs> oh, that's is that not? I think that's Kevin McKidd. Is that Kevin McKidd? Okay, there's one that Kevin McKidd plays the dad, and the and the kid and the kid. And I do like a bit of Kevin McKidd. He's really good. Oh, it's just such a wonderful, heartwarming film that lets the women one take control, and two win, and not have to be owned by a man or given to a man. Yeah. they've all got their own. And also, agency. it demonstrates that you know. I, to be honest, when I was a 16-year-old girl, I had a pretty fucking stressful relationship with my mum. That's mm. the thing that happens. Yeah, Mothers have their ideas about what they want. I mean, maybe it doesn't happen in every family. I don't know. But there is something. And when you look at so many Disney films that are about male bonding, you know, something like Finding Nemo, which is essentially about male bonding, or mm-hmm. about the idea that that fathers and sons rut up against, like, butt mm. up against each other. Not rut up. <laughs> it's a, it's a very, different, very different film, that one. <laughs> Actually, it's a film that genuinely, like, acknowledges that 
mothers and daughters have really complex relationships and that's on yeah. both sides and yeah. both sides need to listen yeah. it's just a fantastic film I immediately recommended it to someone on Twitter who said they were poorly did anyone have any Netflix series I'm like have you seen Brave watch that and she was like alright I will yeah. do um, it's great so I'm sorry Jen that I've made you sit through shit films and you missed out on watching a good one it's alright mate the internet still exists you know yeah. we'll true. be okay I just it feels a bit sad that they made Brave and then knowing that that was in 2012 and the couple of the ones that have come after it it's like oh it's almost like you know when they go oh can we do this film festival and they go oh no we covered women last year yeah it's like it's disney done women now that's it well we did we did one that was you know frozen did have a fairly positive message which I was guess. Mm. be nice to your sister and don't expect a man to save you just which i don't think i can criticize them let for let down by the insipid music though yeah that's Does true. not i mean there you go mick what score are we giving it? I'm going to give it five. Yay! Five what? I'm going to give it five. Why don't people talk about this film more out of five? Hello. Welcome to the bit where we say goodbye from the Standard Issue podcast. Thanks very much for listening. Today, the role of complete inconvenience while I'm trying to record this will be played by Peggy. Next week's podcast, if you're interested, and I can't see why you wouldn't be, is a live recording of our show that we did at the Leicester Square Theatre in October when our guests were the very funny Scarlett Moffat, the completely brilliant Rebecca Front and rising star comedian Evelyn Mock. And we had a really funny, really interesting conversation. So listen out next week. If you enjoyed that little snippet of Jen's interview with the actress Susan McComa you listened to earlier, be aware that... A full version of that will be uploaded on Sunday as our Sunday Chops. So that's something to look out for in the meanwhile. And the following week, which is, I don't know, it's probably December. I would check, but I don't want to think about that. Um, Yeah, the following week, we're back as a podzine. And among our guests, we have the very funny women from the Outlander podcast, which is Maureen Younger and Jen Brister, whose name might ring a bell to regular standard issue readers slash listeners. We had a fine old time with them. Quick moment to say thanks for everyone who was involved in our International Men's Day gig on Sunday and helped us raise some money um, for the men's charity Calm. So thanks to everyone who turned up as a member of the audience. Thanks to our brilliant guests and also thanks to the nice people of Calm who came and shook some buckets and, yeah, hopefully raised some cash. If you're interested in coming to our other events at the Leicester Square Theatre, you're going to need to buy a ticket soon because the December event and the January event are both selling really fast and it's quite probably because we've got some terrific guests. And in December, that's uh, we've got two great actresses, Saran Jones and Stephanie Beecham, plus the writer Jojo Moyes and the guilty feminists Deborah Francis-White. And in January, we have Jennifer Saunders, Joe Wiley and Joe Caulfield. I know, fuck me. Um, they are both really great lineups. But if you don't live in London, maybe you possibly live near Cambridge. And we have a gig coming up in Cambridge, January the 19th at the Junction. Uh, we have two guests confirmed so far. They are the actress, activist and very funny woman, Liz Carr. And also the poet and activist and very lovely woman, Holly McNish. So, um, yeah, get a ticket book for that now if you can. 
Um, I'm going to go because it's incredibly hot under this duvet. Um, so much so that the expression stay frosty seems absolutely preposterous. But uh, there you have it. Until next week, stay frosty. Standard issue for all women.